Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. As we prepare to open God's Word up, join me in a short pulpit prayer about the blood of Jesus. Lord, for me, your blood was spilled. Lead me, guide me in your will. This my prayer and this alone. Savior, let your will be done. All that is opposed to you, however dear it be, Savior, I yield it to you now. Take it all from me. From my heart, the idle tear, you shall have no rival there. You, my hope, my joy alone, Savior, let your will be done in us now through the preaching of your word. Amen. Amen. Well, there's no way to ease into it this morning. I'm not going to start with the easy candy on the bottom shelf. I'm going to start you right with the hard stuff, and I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is the book, no Bible book should be notorious, but Leviticus is the Bible book that's rather notorious for sort of derailing people off of their momentum when they have a good plan on reading through the Bible. They make it through Genesis, they make it through Exodus, then they hit Leviticus and they're like, what's going on here? And they lose steam. But it is a good book and it's God's good word. And it's where we have this wonderful statement about the importance of the blood, the importance of the blood. Leviticus chapter 17, Leviticus chapter 17, verse one. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man for he has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I'll set my face against that person who eats blood and I'll cut him off from among the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for life. Leviticus 17 and verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's the creational principle. That's the creational principle. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And here's the salvation principle that that is on top of that. I have given you the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. 
Leviticus says here that anytime someone kills a goat or an ox or a lamb, they kill it by the shedding of blood. When the blood comes out, the life of the animal ends. Sin brings death. Atonement for sin is only by the death, the shedding of blood. And just as the blood coming out of the animal signifies its death, you could do the same thing, just sort of placing your hand over your heart and recognizing that as the blood beats in your body, you're alive. If there were no blood beating through your heart, you would be dead. So the essence of life is in the blood. The same way I said you could sort of hold your hand over your heart and realize that the essence of you being alive is the blood, it's almost like you could hold your hand over your Bible. It's almost like you could hold your hand over your Bible and say that the essence of the life story of this book is in the blood. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross. For is it not the case that the 39 books of the Old Testament, they testify to one thing, all the blood of all the lambs and all the goats and all the oxen that were ever slain is not enough. What will be enough? What will be enough? All these tributaries flowing and every little stream is not enough and it's not enough. And what is the ocean into which they all flow? Is it not what is held up in the 27 books of the New Testament that on that cross, it is finished? The blood of Jesus. Just as the life of the flesh is in the blood, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the life of the whole story of the Bible is found in the blood. This is why we have a cross before us. This is why there's a cross up on the steeple because the essence of our message is that though we have sinned and deserve death, there is the blood of another by which we can be saved. This is our, this is our, whole, this is our, our, our whole message John Newton, whose hymns we still sing, he had a, a personal motto and he wrote it in the cover of his books and he sometimes wrote it in letters that he sent to people and his personal motto was this, the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord, is food and medicine, shield and sword. Or sometimes he'd write it as the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ, my Lord, is food and medicine and shield and sword the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, our principal text is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. And 1 Peter 1.19 says, we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's put that stone in its setting and let's read 1 Peter 1, verse 17, down through verse 21. You call him, you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile 
knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So this morning... We want to say five things about Jesus Christ and his precious blood from this text. And as by way of outline, I want to alleviate the fears of you perpetual clock watchers. It's my intention to spend 75%, well, let's say 81.3% of our time on the first point in the outline. So don't get freaked out that we take too long there, even though there are five, okay? Just calm down. First point, this precious blood ransomed us. The word for this is salvation. Or there are other biblical words for this. Propitiation, substitution, atonement, sacrifice. The precious blood ransomed us. That's why it says in verse 18, we have that key word ransomed, knowing that we were ransomed. And we were ransomed not with silver or gold, but with the blood, the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the first thing it's saying is that you and I needed to be ransomed, which means what? We were hostage. We were enslaved. We were imprisoned, and we needed to be ransomed. The Greek term ransom is also sometimes translated redeemed. It can be ransomed or redeemed. And the Greek term referred in history to either purchasing the freedom of a slave, that wonderful word manumission, purchasing the freedom of a slave, or paying a ransom because a beloved one was taken hostage, maybe in warfare, and the other king was keeping them in their kingdom, but they said, I'll let them go if you pay this ransom price, this hostage price. So it's to be ransomed or redeemed. The Old Testament picture is that Israel was enslaved to Egypt and God ransomed her, God redeemed her by the blood of the firstborn, the Passover lambs. Now in 1 Peter, what does it say we're ransomed from? Look at the text. Knowing that you were ransomed from, interesting, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The way God Spirit says things in the Bible is perfect. We could have said, and it would have still been inerrant to say, we were ransomed uh, from the devil, or we were ransomed from the wrath of God, or we were ransomed from the consequences of sin, but that's not what he says here. What he says is we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. The word feudal, vanity or vain, V-A-I-N, is a rich biblical word, isn't it? It means worthless. It means good for nothing. It means ultimately empty, like grasping the wind. It means no lasting results. It means if you invest in this, you'll end up with nothing. 
It even reminds me a little bit of what Dave said. Like being a good husband, being a good employee, being a good dad, but in the end, in the end, in the end, what, what is a gain? Titus 3. Verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in the vanity of malice and envy. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, for they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Their futility and vanity is ignorance of mind, is hardness of heart. But what this says is we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. You know, it says there that in verse 17 that we call God our father. It says there in verse 14 that we are obedient children, no longer conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. So what's it saying? God is our father, verse 17. We used to have forefathers who, were, who led us in vain ways and led us to be disobedient children, enslaved to lust. So I think what it's getting at, and you can think about your life and the lives of others who are still lost, who you love and you want to see them saved, and you can think about it this way. When, when, when God isn't worshipped and acknowledged, what happens? Every human heart has a massive, exactly God-shaped hole in it. And when God isn't worshipped and acknowledged, the human heart does not stay neutral. It cannot. For the human heart was always made to grasp, to want, to love, to worship. And when God isn't acknowledged, what rushes into that hole in its place is the passions of ignorance and lust. When the beautiful holiness of God is not counted as beautiful, then the ugly lusts of the world through the deception of the serpent are counted as good and praiseworthy. When satisfaction is not found in God and in God alone, then we reach for the gratification of the ignorance of our lusts. And that's true of every single one of us whether it's self-righteous lusts that look like we're, we're successful or whether it's what we would call sort of like gutter behavior lusts. It's, it, it ends in the same place. What are we redeemed from? We're redeemed from that feudal way of life, from the passions that were ours in our former ignorance, verse 14. Most of the time, when the New Testament says we were redeemed, it means that we were bought back. And it doesn't, most of the time, it doesn't even mean that we were bought back from Satan. Most of the time, it means that God bought us back from the wrath of God. That the, the blood of the Son of God rescued us from the just wrath of God. Most of the time, that's what it's talking about. Most of the time, it's talking about that we were bought back from death. The wages of our sin were death, but the free gift of God is eternal life because of the propitiation of Jesus Christ. So most of the time, we're ransomed or redeemed from the wrath of God or from death. Here, it says we were ransomed from the feudal way of life we inherited from our forefathers. I love this. One of the reasons 
I'm teaching you what it says, but I want to just kind of tickle your imagination to say, why does it say it like this? And one of the reasons I think that it says it like this is because this, the good news of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is way too good to be looked at from only one perspective. And as you twist it through the pages of scripture, there are so, there are so many valiances by which it is seen that the goodness and the greatness of what Jesus accomplished for us, we'll, we'll never get over it. Which is why in the hymn that we just sang, Horatius Bernard's beloved hymn about the fountain, it says that when we die, we won't quit praising Jesus, but after the other side of the grave, we will come up with more creative ways to praise Jesus. So many perspectives, so many facets to the diamond that is what Jesus accomplished for us on that cross. Can't ever get over it. If you ever find yourself under the pulpit ministry of a pastor who has gotten over the cross and is now no longer fascinated by it, but is bored by it, you ought to run. And if you ever don't feel like coming to church because you're bored by the cross and you know everything there is to know about it, you better check yourself because you're in a world of deception and hurt. So here's this perspective that the blood of Christ rescues us from this futile way of life that we inherited from our forefathers. Just as the pattern in the Old Testament, Israel was enslaved to Egypt and God redeemed them, God purchased them. And then specifically in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, God says this, you are no longer belonging to the Egyptians. So don't have anything to do with their gods or their way of life. And then he says, now you're entering into Canaan. And as you enter into Canaan, have nothing to do with the Canaanite way of religion or worship or lifestyle. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here. He's saying as beloved children of God, be holy. No longer walk in the old worldly ways. No longer adopt and adapt to the customs and immoralities and idolatries of the world around you. Instead, marvelously instead, verses 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17 say, the holy nature of God himself now becomes the standard to which you conform and adapt. So rather than being like the Egyptians or the Canaanites, you actually get to become like the God who purchased you in holiness and love. Marvelous, marvelous. Note the contrast between futility and preciousness. A futile way of life is a valueless way of life. It is good for nothing. And the one thing that Peter wants to emphasize about the blood of Jesus is that it is not valueless. In fact, Peter indicates that silver and gold are valueless if you put them up against the blood of Jesus. That's how valuable the blood of Jesus is. Note that contrast between the futility of that way of life and the value of this way of life. And young man, let that contrast be in front of you. Next time you're tempted to look at something on the internet that you shouldn't look at, let that contrast be in front of you. This is everything. The old way of life is meaningless and it evaporates into nothing but judgment and condemnation. The new way of life 
leads to hope and glory. Because of the value of the blood of Jesus, we can no longer follow the way of life that we inherited from our forefathers. We can no longer continue to conform ourselves to the lusts that were ours when we were ignorant about how beautiful God is and how bad sin is. Now we walk in the light of love. We walk in the liberty of the law of God. The beauty of holiness. And notice what it says in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ. Again, every line that the Holy Spirit inspires is perfect. It still would have been inerrant if he said the death of Christ. Many times the New Testament uses the word for death, the death of Christ. Here, it uses the word the blood of Christ. And that's significant. That's significant. Because the blood portrays that the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is why we started in Leviticus 17, 11. This is why uh, Jesus didn't die by uh, uh, being hanged by the neck. And Jesus didn't die by drowning. He died by crucifixion, by the shedding of his blood. The scriptural portrayal was that Christ's atonement would be the fulfillment of all the goats, lambs, oxen that were ever slain by the shedding of their blood. It, beloved, it had to be this way. It had to be this way. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood and because the life of the gospel story of this Bible is in the blood of Jesus shed for us. Salvation by sacrifice is the, and salvation specifically by the blood of Jesus is the, is the great theme of, of, that we praise and that we celebrate. When I was, you know, um, working with Brennan, which I love to work with Brendan. When I was working with Brendan, you know, and, and sharing with him the theme for this service, how hard do you think it was for him to find four or five songs that mention the blood of Jesus? Not difficult. This is our great theme. We already sang the, uh, uh, the There is a Fountain by Horatius Benar. He was one of my favorite poets and hymn writers. I remember well visiting his graveside in Edinburgh with my kids and my wife. But uh, another one from Benar is uh, I Lay My Sins on Jesus. I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, white in his blood most precious till not a spot remains. I don't, I don't feel spotless because I am not guiltless. I repented of sin yesterday. I repented of sin this morning before I got here. I don't feel that I'm spotless and guiltless, but I know that I have a Savior who washes me until I am so. This is my greatest comfort. And notice that his blood is precious, verse 19, but the precious blood of Christ. And notice that he says, it's not perishable, end of verse 18. It's not perishable like silver or gold, but it's precious. His blood is precious. This is the Greek word, uh, timaeos. It's related, I think, to the word Timothy in the sense of highly valued. His blood is precious. Why is his blood precious? Because of the nature of the one whose blood it is. He's Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God. 
Peter loves to talk about gold and silver as non-valuable, and Peter loves the word imperishable. You ever, you ever know a Bible teacher who, when he starts giving illustrations, a lot of times they're about the same thing? You know, I used to know a Bible teacher who had a full-size poodle, like 80% of his illustrations were about his poodle. Or you ever know a Bible teacher who's like a World War II buff, and so all their illustrations are like, oh, it's like the Battle of the Bulge when Satan wanted to do this, and they, 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 you know, or, or maybe, there, maybe he knows how to make wine, or he knows how to cook, and so all of his, all of his illustrations are like from winemaking or from cooking. Peter, he really does get stuck on these illustrations of more valuable than gold and silver and this, and this word imperishable because he's already used it in chapter one, verse four, when he said we have an inheritance that's imperishable and he's already gonna use it again in chapter three, verse four, when he says that the beauty of a Christian wife is not perishable things like gold or jewelry, but chapter three, verse four, the imperishable beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit. I also think Peter was like obsessed with this facet of language in this illustration because he made a big deal out of it in the very first miracle that he performed. If you remember that, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Acts chapter 3. He also used it in when maybe he was the most angry of any time in scripture, which is Acts chapter 8, where I don't even know what this guy was, like Simon the magician. I don't know if it was like a David Blaine thing or it was probably more like a witch doctor kind of thing or an idolatrous kind of thing. But this, this magician comes up to Peter and he's like, here's some gold, give me the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, may your gold and silver perish with you for you have devalued the Holy Spirit. You need to repent or you're gonna die, he says. Peter's all about silver and gold will perish but the, the, the blood of Jesus is imperishable and valuable beyond description. If we ask the question, how valuable is the blood of Jesus? The only way to answer it is to stack up all the gold and all the silver and all of everything and say, it, there is no comparison. The cost of Calvary is far beyond human computation. The value of the shed blood of Jesus is beyond all comprehension. Preachers have been struggling to convey this as long as there have been preachers. The early church fathers, like in the 300s and 400s, uh, they coined a curious but precious little phrase. That little phrase that they coined was, uh, it, um, it means this, more in three hours than in all of created time. More in three hours than in all of created time. Meaning that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplished more in the three hours where he hung at Golgotha than all the men and all the angels and all the spirit-anointed persons in Scripture in all of created time ever accomplished. God created the world in six 
days. Jesus accomplished more in three hours. How precious is the blood of Christ? So we're redeemed, ransomed by that blood. That's the first and most important thing to say. The second thing the text says is that Jesus was foreknown. This can be summed up in the word election or predestination. You see it in verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In biblical revelation, strange, strange, isn't it? In biblical revelation, the cure is held up before anyone even knows there is a disease or before the disease is ever even discovered. Because sin happened in created time. It happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. But Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So sin erupted in a material universe, but before there were human sinners to be redeemed, there was the eternal counsel of God where God the Father had already chosen God the Son as the redeemer of the race that would fall into sin. Which means that this is not a response, not an afterthought. It was planned ahead of time. Peter just said in verse 10 that all of the prophets, that they spoke about this ahead of time. Well, sure, the prophets in the Old Testament spoke about it ahead of time, but that's still in the material universe in created time. We're going before that even, before that even. Why does he say that Christ was foreknown? Well, the point is that we, the, the point is that the redemption was not an afterthought and God didn't scramble to save us The point is that God loved us before there was time. Church, church, would you behold with the eyes of your heart how God has loved you? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love he predestined us to adoption. This is how God has loved us. This is how God has loved us. As a pastor who teaches the biblical doctrines of foreknowledge, foreordination, and election, you can imagine that fairly frequently I talk to somebody who says, could you help me, Spencer? I'm really having trouble. I don't know if I'm elect or not. I don't know if God has foreordained to save me or not. And I... I've tried to help such persons over the years. One of the things that I've found myself saying pretty frequently is this. I hear you, and that's a hard question to struggle with. The good news is God's not asking you to struggle with that question. (laughs) You're facing the wrong direction. You're facing the wrong direction. You turned in a way that God didn't command you to turn. 
because you're facing inward to your own feelings. Like, I don't know if I'm elect. I, 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 sometimes I struggle. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You're facing the wrong direction. Quit spinning your wheels and asking, am I elect? Instead, do this. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and hear this. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Hear that. Get that. And then when you look at yourself, ask one question. Am I a sinner? We're done. Good news. If you're a sinner, Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Look to Christ. You can look to yourself to verify this. I am a sinner who cannot save myself. And once you get that, it's all and always back to Christ. Don't ask the question, am I elect? Ask this question, was there a wooden spike at Golgotha and did Jesus hang on it? Was there a tomb where his dead body was laid and it's empty now? That's the only question to ask. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. John Newton's hymn, Come Sinners. Come sinners, view the Lamb of God, wounded and dead and bathed in blood. Behold his side and venture near, for the well of endless life is there. It's there. This tells us that Christ's blood is precious. It tells us that he was foreknown. Look at how wonderful it is that the third thing that he says is even though he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God the Father had a plan to send God the Son. God the Son had a plan to obey God the Father. But here, Peter speaks not merely of the plans that the triune God has in his own eternal counsel, but he goes so far as to say the outshot of those plans is what? For the sake of you. I said it a couple minutes ago and I'll say it again, church. Would you with the eyes of your heart behold how God has loved you? Would you, would you see it? Would you see it in that phrase for the sake of you? Behold how loved we are. And notice that he says in verse 21, who through him are believers in God. Notice, notice in the text, in verse 21, it says, who through him are believers in God. Everything the Holy Spirit says is, is inerrant. And there are other verses where it says, we believe in him. That's true and inerrant. There are other verses where it says, we believe on him. That's true and inerrant. Here, what does it say? Watch it. It says, who through him are believers in God. That's a lot to take in, but what it means is that by grace you've been saved through faith and that faith is a gift that is given through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's all from him and through him and to him. All of it, all of it, all of it. Amen. What a gift. What a salvation, what a blood. And so we see that it was for our sake. The text goes on in verse 21 to say that God raised him from the dead. That's our fourth point. And then it's the fifth point is that God gave him glory. So raising him from the dead, that's the biblical word resurrection. And giving him the glory, that's the biblical word glorification or ascension. First, in verse 21, it says that God raised the son from the dead. Jesus bled and died. And he said, it is finished. The redemption price was paid. 
The New Testament indicates that the resurrection of Jesus is like the, is like the receipt. It's like, the, it's like the, 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 the conclusion in concrete that this matter is closed and the payment has been accepted. That's what the resurrection is. God raised him from the dead. And then it says that because he's been raised from the dead and he's been given glory, that our faith and hope are in God. Hope in verse 21, Peter first mentioned hope in verse three, you've been born again to a living hope. And then he mentioned it again as an imperative in verse 13, fix your hope on Jesus. Here, he says it's a stated reality because of the resurrection, your hope is in God. It's no longer an imperative like it was in verse 13. It's a stated fact because he's just, he's just soaring on the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Your hope is in God. I love that. And our fifth and final point that Jesus Christ has been given the glory. He raised him from the dead and he gave him the glory so your faith and hope were in God. And the only thing to say about Christ's glorification is, is um, without making too big of a contrast because it's the same God and the same plan, don't you see how in Leviticus the glory of God in, the, the, glory of God in the Holy of Holies is like it repels us away because we're sinners and no one can go in there? And I think based on the way Peter talks, even especially the way Peter says in 2 Peter that now we're partakers of the divine nature, what, what Peter's saying about the glory in Jesus Christ post-resurrection is that because of the atonement and because of Christ's ascension and because Christ took our nature to heaven and he took our names to heaven, that now that glory of God no longer pushes us out, but it actually, it actually welcomes us in. It actually welcomes us in. How have we been loved? Church, behold how God has loved us by this blood. If this, is, if this is all that Christ's blood has done for you and me, can I give you two simple ways to see yourself and your life? And these are very simple. And after I give them to you, actually, we're going to close the service with uh, Brennan singing a song over us, a song of contemplation and reflection. And I would just ask you to make these two, these two points of application just to sort of make them into your prayer uh, as, as Brennan sings over us in just a moment. So two simple ways that the blood of Jesus should, should change your perspective, your purpose, your whole mission in life. Number one, number one. Have you heard this before? Christ died for me. Therefore, I live for him. You know that, don't you? because Christ died for me. Therefore, I live for him. What does that mean? It means I live loyal to him. It means that I don't, I don't let go of him when Caesar tells me that I can get my money in my house back if I let go of Jesus. It means I live loyal to him. It means I live obedient to him. It means I, I live as his child. We live in obedient, loyal love not in order to get God to love us, but we live in obedient, loyal love because God has so loved us while we were his enemies, he shed his blood for us. Christ died for me, therefore I'll live for him. I'll live in obedient and loyal love. It's a whole new way of living. You know Newton's hymn, if you don't know it, you should. Newton's hymn, I'm gonna read it, but if you wanna look it up later, it's called, In Evil Long I Took Delight. 
It's worth printing out and, and thinking about. It talks about the whole new way of living because of Jesus' blood. It's called, in evil long I took delight. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my dying breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned my guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood has spilt and helped to nail him there. Oh, but a second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood has now thy ransom paid. I die so thou may live. Christ died for me. That's why I will live for him. And then the second simple way to think about this, and I would urge you to pray about this and, 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 and make it applicational is this. Because Christ died and rose, I will share that good news. Because Christ died and rose, I will make it my mission to share that good news. I will tell others of his love. I gotta tell them. I gotta tell them that there's a savior and, and your sins can be taken away. You know that, you know that hell is full of hard hearts? Did you know that there is not a soft heart in hell? And did you know that heaven is full of soft hearts and there's not a, a hard heart in heaven? Did you know that a stony heart it can't be softened by water. It can't be softened by arguments. It can't be softened by 82 proofs of the existence of God or the archaeological facts about the resurrection. It doesn't soften stony hearts. The only thing that can take a heart of stone and soften it into a heart of flesh is the crimson, red, thick blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing so hard that Christ's blood cannot soften it. So share the cross of Jesus. Share the cross of Jesus. Christ died for me, I'll live for him. Christ died and rose again. I've got to share that glorious good news. I'd encourage you to take time to meditate on how Jesus has loved you and how he's calling you to love others as Brennan sings to us of the love and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.